Okay, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 8. And uh, this morning, I'm going to preach, I think, the biggest passage I've ever preached Calvary Bible Church on Communion Sunday. And uh, I was barely able to do it the first service. And since the second service never ends, uh, we'll be able to get it done. You know, when you talk to people about how they came to Christ, everybody has a, a little different testimony. From God's perspective, it's pretty much the same. He chose certain people before the foundation of the world to be adopted as sons. And then at his appointed time, he draws them uh, by his grace to himself and works out all the details so they can hear the gospel and uh, grants them repentance so that they are saved. But from our perspective, there's some people come when they're old and young and middle-aged and some people just have all different sorts of testimonies and we've heard them. But you know what's interesting is, is when you talk to a lot of people and you ask them about their testimony, a great majority of people come to Christ during some sort of crisis time in their life, some sort of trial, sickness, pain, misery, you know, relationship affliction, something like that. Uh, how many of you came to Christ? Raise your hand if you came to Christ during some sort of painful time in your life. Go ahead, raise them up. See, I told you. Now, if you were to talk to somebody and say, you know, is pain good? Is misery good? Is sickness good? You say, no, no, no. But what's interesting is God has used that, obviously, for about half the people here have come to Christ through some sort of trial in their life. You see, God would be fine if we just sought him when we were healthy and wealthy and wise in our own eyes. But the problem is, is we won't have God during those times. Many of us trust ourselves. And why do I need God? Everything is so good. Everything is so wonderful. And so what God does is he through his providence, brings upon us trials, affliction, sickness, whatever it takes to bring those he has chosen to repentance. And in that way, he does a good thing for us by a painful thing. And that is just how it is. And that is what we see in our two stories this morning as we come to the latter part of the uh, Luke 8, what we have is a story within a story. We have the story of Jairus and his daughter, and then within that story, we have another story of a woman with uh, the hemorrhage. And, and so what's interesting is as you're reading along, you think to yourself, what happened? There is the story, it's going along just fine, and then all of a sudden, there's another story. And you're thinking, well, well, what happened to the guy with the daughter? And then you realize that he picks back up again, and he finishes the story, and you wonder why these two stories are put together, and actually one within another, and you're going to find out, because both of them basically teach the same things, as we shall see. Now, because our text is long, I'm just going to read and explain as we move along. And there are a lot of things that we can extract from the passage and many rabbit trails we could take. I want to look at the big, the big ones, the main points, the main principles, the four lessons from these two narratives that you can apply to your life so that you can be blessed and so that you can bless and give glory to God. 
And the first principle that we're going to encounter in the text is seek Jesus for healing. Jesus was just asked to leave the area of Gadara, which is where he had healed the Gerizim demoniac. Remember the last time we were here, he he healed the Gerizim demoniac. And after it was done, the people were so shocked, they said, get out of here. And so then he left and went back towards Capernaum. Look at verse 40. And as Jesus returned, the people welcomed him for they all been waiting for him. Here we see the exact opposite response from the people he had just left. The people who had just left were terrified and said, get out of here. And these people are waiting for him and welcoming him to come. Granted, many sought him out of selfish motives, but they were still wanting to learn from him. And many were wanting to have miracles done and they believed that he could do those miracles. So there was some faith, although it was not all saving faith. And they were eager that he return. Look at verse 41. And there came a man named Jairus and he was an official of the synagogue. I'll just stop there for a second. Now we go through the Gospels, we know who the enemies of Jesus were. They were the leaders of the Jews, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. All, uh, most of the leaders were against him. But just because most were, don't think that that means all were. This man has is seeking Jesus now. And we know of other secret followers like Nicodemus, who was a ruler of the Pharisees, and Joseph of Arimathea, who was also leader of the Jews. So there were Jewish leaders who sought Jesus, um, even though for the most part, they did not. But there was this man, he was official of the synagogue, and what he did is he kind of ran the services in the synagogue, kept the synagogue clean, was kind of the manager, overseer of what happened in the synagogue. And this man was seeking Jesus. Look at the middle of verse 41. And he fell at Jesus' feet and began to implore him to come to his house. Now, what you need to remember here is that at this point in Jesus' ministry, Jesus is extremely popular. And so there are crowds of thousands of people. So much so, in fact, that Luke tells us earlier that Jesus didn't even enter into cities for fear of causing human gridlock. And so he just met outside the cities so that there would be these masses outside the cities so he wouldn't just shut down every city he went into because the mass of people wanted to get close to him. So there are this big swarm, this big mass of humanity. They've been waiting for him. Jesus comes and now these people are there. Now, what is interesting is a lot of people, when things are good in their life, They don't want God. They want their sin and they want all the pleasures of this world. When they're healthy, they think, oh, you know, I don't need God because I'm doing fine on my own. God doesn't, uh, you know, really have a place in my life. I, I don't really love Christ. I don't love God's word. I don't love God's people. And I just really don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. But you take that person and throw them off a cliff, they have thoughts of God on the way down. You have that person contract terminal cancer, all of a sudden many of them become very religious. They start thinking of what really matters. 
Now their new car or their favorite hobbies and favorite sins all of a sudden lose all their luster and they realize that reality is here and they need God. And then they come crawling to Christ and what is even more amazing is that just as we sang this morning in the song, they are extended grace. It doesn't matter how they've lived. It doesn't matter if they've been the leader of the satanic worship anti-Christian league. Jesus still has them back. And he will receive them. Even though they've been arch enemies like the Apostle Paul who persecuted the church of God. We know Romans 8.28 when it says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Well, some people, before they even know they are called according to his purpose, God is working in situations in their life to bring them to a place where they're going to come to faith. He is doing them good against their will, as Thomas Watson says. You know, Jesus did expose the sin of the Jewish leaders. He did tell them, listen, harlots and tax collectors will get in the kingdom of God before you. And you know what they thought about this? You're being mean to this. You're slamming us. You're ridiculing us. No, he wasn't. He was telling them the truth. The tax collectors and harlots were getting in before them because they saw themselves as righteous. Jesus was loving them. He was telling them the truth. They had to come to the place where they realized they were in trouble. Judgment was upon them. They were sinners and they needed to turn to him. And so when Jesus tried to do them good, the Jewish leaders turned against him. And surely Jairus was among them. At least he was among them as one who was constantly hearing slander and false accusations against Jesus. He's undermining the law of Moses. He's turning people against the Jewish leaders. He's actually saying we're sinners. But in the providence of God, Jairus had a severe trial. Look at verse 41. It says that he fell at Jesus' feet and began to beg, and he began to implore Jesus to come to his house. Now this is when we begin to see the sincerity and tenacity of this man Jairus' seeking of Christ. He is a great example of what you must do to find Christ. We just look in here and he says, oh yeah, he came and he, you know, got down and he Asked Jesus to come to his house. Well, there's more than that. There's more than that going on here. What's happening is, is by Jairus coming to Jesus, he is committing political suicide among the leadership of the Jews. Not only that, there are thousands of people crowded around Jesus at this time. A huge multitude, five, ten, maybe 15,000 people. Picture in your mind a donut with Jesus in the center. They've given him some room so he can heal people, but the crowds are pressing in. They all want to be healed. They all want to hear him. They all want to see a miracle take place. And so there's this big mass of humanity. And Jairus, in order to come to Jesus has to get through that mass of humanity. And as we shall see in a minute, the crowds are pressing in around him. And think of what this man is asking Jesus to do. 
He's saying, you know what? You see all these thousands of people here? You see this huge, great, massive humanity? I want you to forget about their needs. I want you to come to my house right now. That's pretty bold, isn't it? That is desperate. This man is desperate. He needs Jesus and he needs Jesus now. And so he was willing to seek out Jesus at all costs. Look at verse 42 towards the end where we are told why he sought out Jesus for he had an only daughter about 12 years old and she was dying. There's a good motive. Here the guy has his only child. And you know, who knows what was going through his mind. He'd heard from all the, oh yeah, this guy, he's a fake, he's whatever. But you know what? You couldn't live in that area and not hear about Jesus. He heard about Jesus' miracles. He maybe even saw Jesus do miracles. He may have even been one of the Jewish leaders standing in the back row that Jesus slammed on multiple occasions when he was teaching. And he probably thought, you know... This Jesus guy, who, who does he think he is? But when his daughter was on the verge of death, what happened? All of a sudden, he seeks Jesus. And he doesn't just, you know, go up there and see if he can have a conversation. He approaches Jesus. And as he gets closer, he sees this huge wad of people. And he knows Jesus is in the center. And he's desperate. He needs Jesus. He knows he needs Jesus. He knows that nothing else will do but Jesus. And so he has to get to Jesus. And look at the end of verse 42. But as he went, the crowds were pressing against him. So there's this huge tangled mass of humanity. Now, I don't know uh, if you ever have gone to youth camp. They play games where they're a big tangled mass of humanity. But they aren't thousands. They're just a few. And it's amazing to watch people try and get in through these knots of people. Just imagine thousands, five, ten, fifteen thousand people, and they're all pressing. The word pressing here is the same word used in the parable of the sower, where it talks about the seed falling among the weeds and being choked out. The same word. It's a choking mass of people. They are just mashing, trying to get close. Jairus approaches and he sees this huge wall of people he has to get through in order to get to his daughter. And does he say, oh, it'll be too hard. Oh, I'll never get there. What does he do? He jumps in. He jumps into the mass and in desperation, he's going, move out of my way. And he's mashing, he's pushing, he's crunching, and people, do you think they like him taking cuts? <laughs> and they're, they're, it's like, what are you doing? We're in front of you, get behind us. And he's going under their elbows and mashing through their arms. He's pushing, he's desperate. He's going to seek Jesus if it kills him. It's either Jesus or nothing. There is no equivocation here. There is no thought, well, you know, I might see him. He is going to see Jesus and he's going to see him now. And this is the kind of person that Jesus always responds to. Those who seek Jesus at all cost. The crowd has given Jesus some space. And now, as Jesus is doing miracles, out pops Jairus. Gah! flops down on the ground in front of him and starts begging Jesus. 
Now Jesus and Jairus are the centers of attention and this huge crowd is massing around. They're going, man, look at that guy. What is he doing? And he begins to beg Jesus. And what's interesting how Luke puts it here is he says that he fell before him and then he says what he had to go through in order to fall before him. He had to press through this huge mass of people. And he is a great example because he sought Jesus and he would not have no for an answer. I'm sure there are people in this room, like the multitude described in our text, who never want to really get close to Jesus. They're content by being on the outside. They don't get involved in ministry. They don't want Jesus in their life. They're willing to come to church and kind of stay in the fringe all the time. They're fringe people. They don't really want Jesus. They just don't want to go to hell. Well, I want you to know, if you don't seek Jesus like Jairus, you are going to hell, even if you come to church. Jesus wants people who are desperate. Jesus wants people who know they are in trouble, who know they are sinners, who know that there is no other way for them to escape but then to have him. Some people say, well, you know, you just need to let go and let God know you need to strive. Listen to what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 29:13. The Lord speaking says, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with what? All of your heart. God doesn't say you will find me if you seek for me with a half heart, but with all of your heart. In Isaiah verses 6 and 7 of chapter 55, the Lord calls out to sinners and says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him turn to the Lord and to our God, for he will have compassion and our God, for he will abundantly pardon. There is no, well, I get to have the pardon, I get to have the compassion and forgiveness if I don't. Seek the Lord. If I don't turn from my wicked way and forsake my unrighteous thoughts. No, there is a volition there. An extreme volition. And if you aren't willing to leave your sins and follow Christ, you aren't willing to be saved. Turn over to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. Here Jesus is talking about John the Baptist. We've looked at this before when... In Luke, but we haven't looked at the verse 12, but look at verse 11. Jesus is making a statement about John the Baptist and he says, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now the reason you need to understand verse 11 is this, that Jesus is saying in verse 11 that The lowest person on the totem pole in the kingdom of heaven is greater than the greatest person who ever lives on earth. That is the bait that everyone needs to understand. That heaven is a great thing. That being the lowliest saint on earth is better than being the greatest monarch the world has ever seen. Verse 12. Knowing the greatness of being saved, even if you're least, verse 12, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. Did you see that? Jesus says, you want to go to heaven? 
then be violent for it. Take it by force. That's how people get in. Thinking, well, Jack, that doesn't sound very in the realm of grace. That sounds like you have to strive to enter the narrow gate. It's exactly what it sounds like. It sounds like everyone is forcing his way into it. Luke 16, 16. The ESV translates this and violent and the violent take it by force. The old Geneva Bible says, and they take it by storm. You storm to get in. You storm the castle is the whole idea. How how does this work? Well, when God's grace comes upon a person's life, it doesn't matter anymore. You know what? I'm sure everybody here who knows Christ and came to Christ later in life probably had this experience where all of a sudden you just realized you had to have Jesus. You didn't care about your friends. You didn't care about your family. You didn't care about your job. You didn't care about your reputation. All you cared about is you had to have Jesus and you had to have him now. This is what it means when we, to seek Christ It means that you, in responding to God's grace, do whatever it takes to get to Jesus. And that's what we see in the life of Jairus. Secondly, we'll get back to Jairus in a minute. The woman enters the picture with the hemorrhage. At first, an apparent derailment of the story, but it's not, as we shall see. Verse 43, and a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and could not be healed by anyone. Stop there for a moment. You know, what's not so obvious to people like us, which was very obvious to people in that culture, is the consequences of this woman's illness. According to Leviticus 15, this woman would have been ceremonially unclean. To be unclean meant You couldn't be around anybody for seven days and you had to offer a sacrifice. Well, that's kind of a bummer if this is going on for 12 years. You can't be around anybody for 12 years? That's right. And if you touched an unclean person, you would be unclean for seven days and you would have to offer a sacrifice so no one wanted to be around a person like this. She was a social leper. She could have leprosy. They would have treated it the same way. Unclean, unclean. And to be a courtesy, she would have to say that when she approached people. It would have been a miserable life. In Leviticus chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, it talks about if you touch somebody who is unclean or some unclean thing, then you are unclean. And surely the people of her town knew she was unclean, so she probably had to live in the outskirts of town, isolating herself from human contact. Just think about that, not having a hug for 12 years. The text also tells us that she could not be healed by anyone, which tells us that this woman desperately tried to get healed by everyone, and no one could do it. 
For 12 years, she lived as an unclean person. Mark 5.26 adds some interesting details, which Luke leaves out. Mark's parallel account says that she had endured much at the hands of physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. Of course, Luke is a physician, so he leaves that part out. That this lady squandered all of her wealth trying to get doctors to heal her, and they could not do it. As a matter of fact, she had gotten worse. Now, it's interesting to note the parallels here. Why is this story just kind of thrust into the middle of the story of Jairus? Well, this is why. Note the parallels. One, Jairus... And the woman both fall at Jesus' feet. Secondly, Jairus heals Jairus' daughter and heals this woman whom he refers to as daughter, a daughter of Israel. Both are called daughter. Third, Jairus' daughter was 12 years old and this woman was sick for 12 years. In fact, this woman was sick the entire time this young girl was living. Four, both are healed by faith in Christ. Jairus, of course... His daughter is healed by his faith, the woman healed by hers. Five, both were healed by coming in contact with Jesus. Jesus touched the daughters, we shall see, and she's healed. The woman touches Jesus, and she's healed. Six, both were ceremonially unclean. The girl was unclean because she dies, as we shall see. The woman is unclean because of this hemorrhage. And so knowing this helps us understand why Luke puts this story right in the middle. They are just two peas in a pod. These stories are very similar. They teach us the same thing. Jesus had created such a huge stir in that area that Mark 5.27 tells us this woman had heard about it. And so she said, you know, I've tried everything else. I'm going after Jesus. She believed Jesus could heal her. How do we know that? Because Mark 5.28 and Matthew 9.21 parallel accounts tell us what she was thinking. And what she was thinking was, if I will just touch his garment, then I will be healed. Now that is an interesting thing to think, since no one else got healed by touching his garment. What made her think that? I don't know. But that's what she thought. She said, hey, if he's the son of God... If I even touch his garment, I will be healed. Now keep in mind that the huge crowd is gathered, but now it's in motion. Jairus has fallen down, said, please come to my house. And Jesus has granted him his request. So now he's make way. So now he's moving towards Jairus's house. And what's interesting is, is as they're in motion, going towards the house, this woman is able to manipulate her way through the crowd because the crowd is breaking up and now they're all walking. And yet, she knows she can't say unclean, unclean. I mean, imagine the disastrous effects of having several thousand people having to go through them saying unclean. They probably would have picked up stones and threw them at her and said, get out of here, you're unclean. So she doesn't say anything and she's going to sneak up behind Jesus, as we shall see. Look at verse 44. 
And she came up behind him, touched the fringe of his cloak, and immediately her hemorrhage stopped. You see, usually when you were unclean, you would say, unclean, unclean, but not this woman. She realizes, listen, I gotta get to Jesus, and I've gotta get to him now. This is my chance. And so she's sneaking up. Why does she touch touch the fringe of his garment? What is that talking about? Well, in Numbers chapter 15 and Deuteronomy chapter 22, the law of Moses said that all Jews were to wear four tassels on the bottom hem of their clothing and they were to have a blue scarlet th- uh, thread in them and those are a blue a blue cord in them not blue scarlet that wouldn't be right um i was thinking of uh, rahab um a, a blue cord in them and that blue cord was there to let them know that they were to remember and keep the law of god so this woman is thinking you know i don't want to make jesus unclean but if i can just get up there and touch the tassel The little fringe, that little part hanging down, if I could just touch that little bit, I will be healed. No one told her this. This had never happened to anyone. She just believed it to be true because she believed that Jesus was the Son of God. And so guess what? That's what she did. And guess what? The text says she was healed immediately. You might wonder, well, how did... How did she know she was healed immediately? Well, if you have this kind of sickness and you're bleeding, what happens is, is it causes problems. Your iron levels go way down and pretty soon you become anemic. You become weak and you just, you're just out of energy. And so this woman goes up to Jesus. She's tired. She's weak. She's been sick for 12 years and she touches the hem of his garment. And when she does, this power just surges through her and vitality comes back and strength comes back. And she knows immediately she's been healed. Look at verse 45. And Jesus said, who is the one who touched me? Well, she didn't even touch him. She touched the robe that was touching him, but it still worked. Look at the middle of verse 45. And while they were all denying it, Peter said, Master, people are crowding and pressing in on you. This is Peter's way of saying, that was a dumb question. (laughs) I mean, look at all the people. They're all touching you. They're all bumping into you. Look at them all. What do you mean, who touched me? Everybody's trying to touch you. But Peter didn't know what Jesus knew. Peter didn't know that when a particular person touched Jesus, all of a sudden Jesus felt power coming out of him. I don't know what that feels like, but since I'm not the son of God, I probably never will. Well, look at verse 46. Jesus said, someone did touch me for I was aware that power had gone out of me. Yes, many people were crowding around Jesus. Many people were bumping into Jesus, but only one person touched him. So that power went out. And the reason we're going to find out in a minute. But this is fascinating to think about. That this woman was actually healed by Jesus without Jesus's consent. The father and the Holy Spirit looked down on this woman, saw her faith, and they granted her the miracle that Jesus was unaware of. We also see Jesus' humanity here in that even though he was God, he didn't always exercise his divine attributes and he 
was in submission to the father's will. And so he said, who touched me? He didn't know. Look at verse 47. And when the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, she came trembling and fell down before him. Why? Because she was unclean and she touched Jesus. That's why. Because she made her way through the crowd and didn't say unclean, unclean. And so she's apologizing to Jesus. She's apologizing to the crowd and she's explaining to them the reason why she had touched him and what happened when she did. She was immediately healed. She was found out. So she did that. Look at verse 48. And he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. In an amazing reversal, when she is unclean and she touches Jesus, Jesus makes her clean instead of her making Jesus unclean. Now, what do we learn from this? Yes, Just like Jairus, we need to seek Jesus. Just like this woman, we need to seek Jesus. But we need to seek Jesus in faith. In faith. There are a lot of people who seek Jesus for a lot of reasons. You read through the gospel, some were seeking him trying to kill him. Some were seeking him because of the free food. Some were seeking because of miracles. Some seek Jesus out of guilty consciences. Some seek Jesus out of of religious duty. But what Jesus wants us to do is seek him with saving faith. Do you understand what saving faith is? Saving faith isn't just saying, oh, I believe that Jesus is the son of God, born a virgin, died on the cross for our sins, was buried and rose again on the third day. The demons know that. Mormons will tell you that. Most cults will tell you you need to believe in Jesus. No, what saving faith is, is a Knowledge of who Jesus is, a knowledge of what Jesus did, and volition, will, combined with that faith, which desires to trust Jesus. Which means that whatever you're trusting in before, you must let go of. We saw that in Isaiah 55. You let go of, repent of whatever it is you're living for to grab on Jesus. But you don't get to live for your idol and then live for Jesus too. Saving faith grabs hold of Christ and trusts him completely. And that is what we see in this woman. Nobody said, listen, all you got to do is touch the little dangly thing and his robe. She She just believed it. She just went and said, you know. He's the son of God. I know he is. I know he can do this. And she just went up and touched him and power went out and healed her. This woman's faith was not the dead faith that James described. It was a living faith, a working faith, a faith that did something. She wasn't sitting on her couch at home going, well, I'm just going to trust God. She sought Christ. She found Christ. She reached out and touched Christ and she was healed. And the question is, what about you? Are you seeking Jesus? Are you placing your faith in Christ, a trusting faith, a faith that relies upon Jesus, that believes in your mind what Jesus says is true is true. And so I am going to live that way because I believe it's true. Don't give me this, I believe it's true, and then not live that way. That's unbelief, regardless of what you say. And so are you seeking Jesus? Are you seeking Jesus in faith? Are you seeking Jesus believing he can heal you? And not physically. 
I mean, he can do that too, and he may do that, and he does that on occasions. But listen, when Jesus was alive here on earth, yes, he came offering physical healing. But remember, all those people got sick and died again. Those were just nothing more than pointers to let people know who they needed to look at for spiritual healing. And so Jesus, yes, did the physical healing, but Jesus isn't offering physical healing today. He is offering spiritual healing. He's offering to save you from the consequences of your sin. That's what he wants for you. That's what he wants for all of us. You know, some people try and tell you, well, you know, if you're a Christian, if you're a true believer, God will heal you and make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. That is a lie. All the way through the ages, ever the apostles died. If God wanted us all healthy, we'd never die physically. But yet we all do. As a matter of fact, Hebrews 9.27 says it is appointed for men to die once, and after that comes the judgment. It's going to happen. And even if Jesus were to heal you right now of some terminal disease, guess what? You're going to die of another one. (laughs) And so it's just a temporary fix. And they like to go to Isaiah 53, 5, which talks about, and by his scourging, we are healed, or by his stripes, we are healed. We are healed spiritually, spiritually. Once you're healed spiritually, then you live even if you die. You live on for eternity. Jesus can heal you. He can save you. He can forgive you. He can make you whole for all eternity if you are willing to place your faith and trust in him. That is what we see Jairus doing. That's what we see this woman doing. Now let's get back to Jairus. The third point. No, there is always hope if you have faith in Jesus. Look at verse 49. And while he was still speaking, that is to the woman. Get this. The big mass is there. He comes back from the Gerizim demoniac situation. There's this huge mass crowded around him. Jairus mashes his way through the crowd, falls on his face, says, listen, please come to my house. Jesus says, okay. They start moving in that direction when, through the crowd, dodges this woman with the hemorrhage, touches the back of the hem of his his garment, is instantly healed. The procession has started. The little incident occurs. I'm sure Jairus is at this part. Come on, come on. My daughter is dying. Come back and heal these people. He's desperate. He's a desperate man. And so they finally get underway again, having been interrupted by the woman with the hemorrhage. And then look at verse 49. While he was still speaking, someone came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Now, that would have been a real blow. Jairus must have been crumbled in grief, at least for a moment. He knew his daughter was dying. He believed that Jesus could heal her. He managed to get through the crowd. He threw himself at Jesus' feet. Jesus granted his request. They were moving in the right direction. They were going towards his house to heal his daughter. And now as they're walking this way, someone runs in the other direction and says, Don't bother him anymore. Your daughter is dead. She's dead. She's no longer sick. She's dead. Now, that must have rent his heart. But what is amazing is what Matthew 
tells us in Matthew 8:19 in his parallel account when he says that even after he heard the news after he knew his daughter was dead said come lay your hand on her and she will live the guy is unstoppable he must have been shocked for a moment and then he must have said listen if he's the son of god he can raise her from the dead i've heard he can do that too Look at verse 50. And when Jesus heard this, he answered him, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe and she will be made well. You know what you can learn from this? There's always hope if you have faith in Jesus. There's always hope. No one has ever placed their faith in Jesus Christ and ever been disappointed about it. You know, you may not even get what you want when you place your faith in Jesus, but you're going to get what God wants. And in the end, you're going to realize that's the better thing because you don't even know what you need. I, I know you think you need to win the lottery, but you know what? You win the lottery. That money may destroy you. It has many. You may think you need to be healthy, but you know what? God knows that if you're healthy, you might fall into some sin or might dishonor his name or that you might not be as close to him. It's better for you to be sick and closer to Jesus. God knows what is best for you. And in this instance, this man shows such incredible faith because even when the man says, listen, your daughter's dead, he's only shocked momentarily and he still turns to Jesus and says, still come to my house. And lay her hand on her and she will live. And we know the guy believed because he went to his house. I mean, if the guy didn't believe, he wouldn't have taken Jesus to his house. But he didn't believe. He did still take him to his house, even though his daughter was dead. There's always hope in Jesus. You need to place your faith in Jesus. You need to seek him. You need to seek him in faith. And you need to hope in him. Because he will never disappoint you. Fourth. Know that Jesus will raise you from the dead. Look at verse 51. And when he came to the house, he did not allow anyone to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the girl's father and mother. Now, Luke has this way of kind of going ahead and then kind of going back to explain the situation. But what we see here and what we're going to learn is Jesus has this private audience because he's going to tell them, don't tell anybody. Why? It doesn't say. The commentators just go crazy on this. You know, uh, the part, what's interesting is the part that commentators comment the most on are the things that are never said, which is kind of interesting. Whenever you have something not said, they have a lot to say about that. And you know, say, but well, you know, the people were unbelieving outside or, you know, he didn't, you know, want this to happen. But, you know, everybody had already known he'd already he already raised the dead in public. He'd already healed all manner of disease and sickness in public. He was doing miracles in public. He just healed the woman with the hemorrhage in public. I mean, you know, the people already knew the girl was dead. She's going to come out alive in a little bit. It's like, hello. You know, so I don't know why, you know, I have no idea, but. He's taken a private party into the room with him. Look at verse 52. Now, they were all weeping and lamenting for her, but he said, stop weeping, for she has not died, but is asleep. So he's entering into the house. He sees the mourners, which are all often called when somebody's sick. They're called, brought around. He says, don't mourn anymore. She's not dead. She's asleep. And they go, ha, 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 ha. And they laugh at him. They scorn him. They mock him. What a fool. Asleep. 
Well, that's what he said. Now, it's interesting, when you do a a word study on this word sleep, it's used a lot of different ways. For instance, in Mark 4.38, it describes Jesus sleeping in the stern of the boat. You know, basic, you know, sleeping. It's also used in reference to salvation, such as in Ephesians 5.14, where Paul, speaking to those who need to come out of darkness into light, says, awake sleeper and rise from the dead. So in that, it's like, you know, get an eternal life. Again, it's used to describe spiritual apathy, as in 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, and 7, where Paul exhorts believers, let us not sleep as others do, speaking of living a life that is not focused on bringing glory to God. You know, let us not be spiritually lethargic. It's also used to describe death, such as in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, and 10, where Paul says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or sleep, we will live together with him. Awake means alive in our mortal bodies. Asleep means dead physically. The question is, how is Jesus using it here? Well, we know that Jairus' daughter was physically dead. Jesus knew that because the messenger already said that. The mourners were there. It was obvious. So he couldn't mean, oh, she's not physically dead. What Jesus does mean is that, yes, while the girl is physically dead, she is merely asleep because the real her is still alive. Now, follow me here. In our world... A world saturated by lies about afterlife and evolution. We are told that when you die, it's over, baby. That's it. Death is the the final fling. You know, I mean, it's over. You just go into never ever land. You just disappear. That is a lie. When you die, you still live. When you die, you're conscious. You wake up right after death in one of two places, heaven or hell. You live forever. Everyone lives forever. You know, when you're worried about dying, when people are worried about dying, you know, oh no, I'm sick, or I might get this, I might get that. You know what that is? That's unbelief. Jesus said, Do not fear those who kill the body, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed the body has the power to cast both body and soul in hell. In other words, after you die physically, there is somebody who can kill you spiritually, which is to throw you into hell. It's called the second death. The point you need to realize here is that Jesus is saying, yeah, this girl, though she is physically dead, is just waiting for resurrection. Now, turn to John chapter 11. Let's look at Lazarus of Bethany. I know we all know this story, but let's just see. Jesus says some of this almost identical things in John chapter 11. You know, this the story probably that Lazarus is Jesus's friend and, and, um, they send messengers, hey, you know, your good buddy's sick, come heal him. And Jesus then kind of hangs out for a couple days. And you think, 
what's going on here? Look at verse 3. So his sister sent word to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified in it. So Jesus delays. Look down the middle of verse 11. Jesus says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, uh, he'll recover. I mean, he's going to wake up. Now, Jesus has spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. I know that. <laughs> and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. And if you know the story, Jesus gets there and is confronted by two women. If you would have come a little bit sooner, why did you delay? And then Jesus raises him from the dead. But notice that Lazarus was dead physically, but Lazarus himself was not dead. You see, this is the point that this section teaches. Physical death is not the end of life. And everyone who dies physically will be raised again. You can look at a text like this and you can think to yourself, well, listen, Jack, what does this text have to do with me? You know, I, I'm, I mean, the story's interesting, and I'm glad that it happened, you know, 2,000 years ago to the little girl, and that Jesus raised her from the dead, but he's not even here. He's not going to raise me from the dead. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. John 5, 28 and 29, Jesus speaking, says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Everyone gets resurrected. Everyone. And not just the daughter. Yes, during Jesus' ministry, in a few instances in the Old Testament, people were raised again temporarily to die again. But Jesus has the power and will execute that power to raise everybody from the dead permanently. Some he will raise from the dead, give them a body that will be fit for the second death, which is the lake of fire. Others he will raise immortal, given them a glorified body just like his that will be fit for all eternity and those bodies will never get sick or die. But everybody gets resurrected. Jesus has the power to raise you from the dead. And this is the great truth of Christianity. This is why funerals are so cool for believers. People always look at me, Jack, you know, you seem pretty happy at that funeral. Man, I'm happy. They say, well, why are you so happy? Because, man, that person's coming out. They're going to be raised from the dead. They're with Jesus right now. Their spirits are with Jesus right now. I mean, how could I be sad about that? I'm so sorry you're with the Lord. I'm so sorry that you're happier than you've ever been. I'm so sorry you get to talk with the saints of all the ages. Too bad you're not back here in this sin-cursed world fighting against your wicked sin-cursed heart. Come on. These people who know Christ, they are raised 
immortal, glorified. They stand before the Lord and are whiter than snow and perfect in holiness. That is something to rejoice about. Don't buy into the lie that death is the end. It's not the end. It's the beginning. Satan wants you to think death is the end so that you don't fear what's going to happen. I'm telling you, if you don't know Christ, you better be fearful. You better be terrified until you come to repentance and faith in Christ. Look at verse 53. Jesus is coming. He says, oh, she's not dead. That is, her spirit isn't dead. She's just fallen asleep. She's died physically. Verse 53. And they began laughing at him, knowing that she had died. And Jesus doesn't explain himself. He just goes into the house. Look at verses 54 and 55. He, however, took her by the hand and called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up immediately, and he gave orders for something to be given to her to eat. Some people ask, why is that? Well, the girl was probably sick for a long time, wasn't able to eat. And do 12-year-olds eat? Yeah. Come to my house. Um, they eat. Yeah. And so the parents are so excited. Jesus, you see, is compassionate, wants to make sure that this young girl hasn't eaten anything for a long time, gets something to eat and says, hey, make sure she gets something to eat. Look at verse 56. And her parents were amazed and instructed them not to tell anyone what had happened. Jesus didn't want the publicity at this time for raising this girl from the dead. We don't know why. He probably knew the consequences of how this would affect his plans. Who knows? But the last portion, the last truth, the last principle you need to take away from here is Jesus can and will raise you from the dead. You will be raised from the dead. It'll either be to heaven or to hell, but you'll be raised from the dead. You can't escape it. No one gets to stay in the ground and just live in oblivion. You'll be conscious after death. The real you will never die. All souls, all spirits are eternal. They never die. And that is why we need to make sure that in this life, we aren't living for this life, but for the life to come, because that is the real life we need to live for. And so you need to ask yourself, do you see yourself as a great sinner? Do you see yourself as in need of a savior? Are you seeking Christ? Are you seeking him above all other things? Have you found him? Have you laid hold of him? Have you placed your hope in him? And are you saved? And if not, you need to be so today. Today is the day of salvation. Do not delay. And if you are a believer, if you have placed your faith in Christ, if you have been born again and your life has changed, you need to remember that as you live your life here on earth, that this life is not all there is. The pleasures of this life, all the things we see in the world are all going to pass away. So don't put all your eggs in this life You live for eternity. Sure, you can enjoy things in this world, but don't do it to the neglect of the things you must do to bring glory to God. You have to live for the glory of God because eternity is coming because even when you die, you live. And for those who don't know Christ, this should scare you. It should make you want to seek Christ and lay hold of him to strive to enter the the narrow gate, to take heaven by storm if necessary. To squeeze in. Because as Jesus said, the way is narrow and few are able to find it. And he even says, as we get to Luke 13, many will seek to enter, but will not be able. And you know why they won't be able? Because they're unwilling to let go. 
of their sin and the pleasures and the world and the control of their own life. And because they're not willing to let go, Christ is not willing to have them. You must cling to Christ and lay hold of him with all your heart. And then he will save you. He never rejects anyone who comes to him in faith. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for this text. What a great example of two people who sought the Savior with tenacity, with faith, without doubting, and were rewarded. And Father, we know that you still offer this to all. You say, Come to me, all you are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You are commanding all men everywhere to repent. And Father, you will save even the greatest sinner if they would merely fall down before you like Jairus and beg you for help. Father, if there's somebody here, which I'm sure there are, who hasn't given their life to you, who hasn't really believed and trusted in Christ so as to live for him. I pray, Father, that you would grant them by your grace that faith they need. Open their heart to your truth. Help them to see Jesus standing before them and that they might come and bow down and be saved and transform for forevermore. And for those of us who know you, I pray that we would remember that this life is not all there is. That eternity awaits just on the other side of death. And that, Father, when we die, life will really begin. So, Father, help us to live today in light of tomorrow so that we might give you glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.